Hi, everyone, and welcome to Seven Mile Chats, a podcast where each week I, Julia Struckley, talk with someone about a scripture verse of their choosing, and we look at that scripture from different angles. I'm a scripture teacher at a Catholic school. I've been a youth minister. I have a master's in theology, but the purpose of this podcast is just to have a conversation about scripture and try to apply it to today's world. And today I'm walking and talking with someone I've not yet met in person, but is a match from Podmatch. He's the founder and director of Spirit Equip Ministries, a transdenominational equipping ministry focused on developing spiritual disciplines. He's earned four degrees with three in theology and spirituality. He's an author and a conference speaker. It's Dr. David Chaka. Welcome, Dr. David. Well, thanks very much, Julie. It's nice to be called doctor, you know. <laughs> I mean, you earned it. You earned that degree. You might as well. If I ever got one, I'd make everybody call me it. <laughs> oh, that, actually, it's very true. I did earn it, and it was a lot of work, to be straight with you. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the, the doctorate. Actually, you know what? The master's degree took more work than the doctorate did. Isn't that strange? I had a doctoral level professor who was in an institution that didn't grant doctorates, so I got a master's degree. But, oh, man, did that boy work me. <laughs> yeah. So, I got mine um, while I was teaching full time, so I, I, yeah, it was painful for sure. It was a lot of work. Oh yeah, well, ordinarily a thesis in a, in a master's program at the THM level is 120 pages, and he, this man was so pleased with my subject. I wrote 400 pages on the Greek text of Ephesians, looking at the doctrine wow. of the spirit against the backdrop of the demons in the book, to try and get a figure out what the life setting of the epistle was. So that's that's my. I, I guess you could say that's some historical background. He was a thorough scholar, so uh, he's one of the translators of the New International Version Bible, so this scholar was one of the very, very best on earth, and it was an amazing privilege to study with him. That's so cool. I mean, I, I'm, I geek out about stuff like that. Um, what else would you like to share about yourself? Uh, we were chatting a little bit about that you're from Ontario, or Windsor, Canada, rather. Yeah, anything else you'd like to share with the listeners? Well, Windsor is in Ontario, for those who don't know, but um, listen, I've been in the ministry since 1983. And I've pastored, I think, uh, four churches, uh, most of them for, you know, for a decent run of time. And usually they're large multi-staff. Uh, I had I belong to a transdenominational prayer meeting where I prayed with a Roman Catholic priest, a Greek Orthodox priest, an Anglican. Uh, in those days, I belonged to the Methodist tradition. And there was an evangelical free church guy who was a Mennonite. And there was a Pentecostal guy. And that was our prayer meeting. <laughs> I love that. I love that. I love the ecumenical, you know, ecumenism, I think, is so important. Well, you know what? The thing was we'd argue. We'd just argue until we decided to use the lectionary. And mm. everybody in the room loved the Bible. And so it was a simple matter of us coming into the room, sitting down, being cordial, then reading the four readings from the scripture and then praying the scripture and not praying our thinking. It was this amazing experience of hearing how each and each tradition listen to the scripture and they would pray it devotionally and that that prayer meeting changed me it mm. really did so that's what actually it was one of these shaping events in my life that has brought me to being a writer and a traveler and an author i love that i'm in an ecumenical program myself right now i'm um, training to become a spiritual director and it's an an ecumenical program it's based at, it was the building is an old convent because i feel like that that just tracks i feel like that's that's common um but yeah. then an episcopal episcopal priest purchased it and then started this program that i'm in so there's um all kinds of ministers from different denominations and it really is beautiful that we can find that common ground and that's why i kind of i do this podcast as well is to find the common ground with the scripture so what else would you sure. like to share about yourself something else Oh, married, two kids. One just got married. And actually, it's interesting. Uh, I'm in the Protestant tradition now, but he married a Greek Orthodox girl. Mm. And so I wound up going to that service. Um, 
And this and it was interesting because my son and I both speak Spanish. He did missionary work in Latin America, learned how to speak Spanish. And the priest was Lebanese, but he grew up in Argentina. <laughs> so, wow. so I got to the door of the church. I have a Ukrainian Orthodox background, shook the hand of the priest. And of course, I know the liturgies because I, I learned them as a child. And my son's marrying into that tradition. And uh, he finds out this background and we start speaking Spanish to him. So in the liturgy, which is absolutely beautiful, uh, the, you know, the, the priest walks the couple around the cross and the Bible three times, once for each person in the Trinity, then looks at the couple as he crowns them with crowns and makes them king and queen of their home and says, you've been sealed into the sacrifice of Christ and into the word of the Lord. This is your marriage as servants of Christ. I'm like, beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful liturgy. Anyway, I, I, he starts using some of the liturgy in Spanish to make my son happy. <laughs> Aww, I love that. That was very sweet, you know? Yeah, I, the, the Eastern um, Orthodox rites, on my dad's side of the family is Byzantine, and it's, it's just, they're beautiful, and the church is so, so ornate, um, but I love the rituals. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, it is, and, and of course, you know this, the, the, the common history was the first 10th, 11th century, so, so it's the same church until the 11th century, and uh, mm -hmm. Just recognize that. Yeah. Well, the, I, I can't wait. We have, I think we're going to have a great conversation. We have a ton to chat about. And you've picked sure. uh, Luke chapter 5, verses 16 and 17. And you shared that we're going to do the New American Translation, which, you know, as a Catholic, I love that. So um, whenever you're ready, I'm going to have you read that for us if you have it in front of you. Well, the sentence begins in 15. So I'll start there if that's acceptable to you. Sure. Of course. Yes. <laughs> okay. The, re the report about him spread all the more and great crowds assembled to listen to him and to be cured of their ailments. But he would withdraw to deserted places to pray. One day as Jesus was teaching Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him for healing. Um, so I'm going to give a little context, um, and I like that you kind of led us into with the previous verse. Um, we're in chapter 5 of Luke's Gospel, as I mentioned, and at the beginning of this, we have the temptation in the desert where he's also kind of retreating. I love these passages where Jesus is seen taking a break. You know, he's um, just called his apostles, and he's, as you the verse mentions, um, doing all these minist this ministry of healing, and so I love that he kind of breaks away and, and take as an introvert I'm an introvert like I appreciate that he needs to kind of re recharge his himself or like kind of you know gather himself or pray um so this this verse comes in between he started his ministry he's called his apostles he's doing the, he's, he's starting to heal people and so he's taking this moment away um so that's kind of a little bit of where we're at but my first question for you is why did you choose this passage David well because uh, I've written a book on prayer for healing and this is a healing narrative, and it speaks about the dynamics of healing ministry. And uh, I don't know if you're <laughs> – listen, I've been in ministry for a long time. And any time mm -hmm. something succeeded and the crowds would come, everybody who was in charge of the church would look at the pastor or the priest, and he'd say, you got to add more. you got to do more. <laughs> mm. So in the beginning of this passage, this huge crowd just starts to gather because they're pressing in on him to get healed. And instead of doing more, he withdraws to pray. Mm -hmm. That's very striking. And, you know, if it was, and he was praying for their healing. And so you had what I call spectacular public prayer. But the roots of this were found in his personal devotion with private prayer. And he never shortchanged the private prayer for the public. But I'm, I'm, I'm utterly convinced of this. And of course, if you're a Roman Catholic, then you understand this. We believe that Jesus is not only the Son of God, but God the Son, second person of the Trinity. 
And I pick this passage because it deals with some of the mystery of how God operates in this fallen creation that we call planet Earth. He actually withdraws to pray. Well, if he's God, this stuff, what's he doing? Talking to himself? <laughs> <laughs> so what, what goes on here is incarnational theology. You have God the Son entering into the human domain to acquire what our first parents rejected and to reclaim it from the powers of darkness that uh, deceived our first parents in the, in the narrative in the garden. And so he had to pray because he's entered the human condition and the conditions mm -hmm. that God established for our first parents. And so it's utterly and completely and totally human to pray. It's not just a prerogative of him being God. It's a prerogative of him abandoning all those things that were attached to the power of the Godhead to enter into prayerful submission to the movement of the Spirit. And it shows up in verse 17. And so I wanted people to see that his prayer life was the font of the action. And in verse 17, mm -hmm. you have this absolutely pregnant phrase at the end of the, of the verse. You've got this big crowd gathering. And of course, it's a reflection of verse, uh, of verse 14, 1450 where the crowd is gathering. And we have another one. And if you look at who's in the room, you have people from everywhere coming on foot. Now, for them to travel on foot, they had to have a beastly burden. They had to have food. They had to have water because of Middle Eastern heat. They had to be appropriately garbed. And they had to have probably a crowd to walk with so they'd be safe. And they've come from all over Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And then, because we know how Luke was composed, we know that Luke was not an eyewitness but that he gathered material written resources and he spoke to eyewitnesses about the events that are recorded in his gospel. And here we have an eyewitness account that Luke has obtained from somebody who told him. And this is what it means. While this big crowd was gathering, there was this sense of manifest power that was over the top of the room. And whoever it was that told Luke, whether it was one of the apostolic band or a witness, or maybe even the healed person, That power landed on Jesus, and he flowed with the power as the healing gift flowed through him to accomplish the miraculous mm -hmm. act. And the mm -hmm. reason why I find this phrase so powerful is because it sends the message that's clear in John's gospel all the way through. All the way through John's gospel, this, Jesus says, the son can do nothing of his own initiative. He can only do what he sees the father doing. And that's repeated like a dozen times all through the material. And it has implications for Christology. It has implications for, uh, for incarnation. It has implications for uh, uh, anthropology, what it means to be a human who walks with Jesus. And this text makes clear that there were seasons where the power of the Lord was not present for him to perform mm -hmm. healing. And mm -hmm. when I wrote the book on healing prayer, I'll, I'll just tell you, I, I, I tripped into prayer for healing. And I'll just tell you why. I had never met anybody who was healed through what the scripture calls the prayer of faith. I had never seen uh, anybody pray in a decent kind of a way that wasn't kind of hokey or false or something around people who were afflicted. And I'd never been trained to do that. You know, I mean, there's a rite that's liturgical in format. But when you see Jesus doing this, there's these descriptions of power landing on him and of, of the power flowing through him and of people walking in that power and receiving that power. There's impartations of power that are given to the 12 and to the 70 so that they can do the same things that Jesus did. And I don't hear people talking about it. <laughs> mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. my first experience of, of healing prayer was where I had a fella who was making fun of me, made fun of my faith. 
And he made fun of my faith regularly and consistently in classes that we were in. And when there was, there was a conversation about the power of Christ and the, the ability of Jesus to heal or any of the, of the nature miracles or any casting out of demons or whatever it was that's in the gospel narrative, I would say, yes, that happened. And this guy would stand up and he could have been a stand-up comic. I mean, he was just so funny. But what he would do is he'd lob the humor grenade in the middle of the room around believing what I believed. And in the course of time, it just got me. You just got to, I got to avoid this guy. But we had a mutual friend, and I called her Susie in the book. And uh, she walked up to me one day. And I'd, I'd already said to myself, I'm never going to be friends with that guy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Anyway, this girl walks up to me, and she says, uh, how you doing, David? And I said, oh, I'm fine. How about you? And she said, fine. And, oh, by the way, our friend's in the hospital. And she pointed down the street. We were in the University of Toronto. Pointed down the street, and there's a hospital. There's a street called University Avenue, and there's three hospitals on that street. And I had my school there. And she was pointing down six blocks down the road. She said, uh, oh, by the way, our friend, the jokester, he's in the hospital. I said, oh, well, that's too bad. What's wrong? She said, he has phlebitis. And for those who are listening, um, if they don't know, phlebitis is where you have a clot uh, in your vein. And if the clot breaks free, it'll lodge in either your brain or your lung, and it will kill you 95 times out of 100. That's a very serious medical condition. So she said, oh, by the way, he's got phlebitis. And I said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. And she said, yeah, he wants you to go and pray for him. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> and she said, you know, he wants you to go and pray for him. I said, I'm not going. Anyway, the story is very long. It's told in my healing prayer book. But in the course of time, I realized that I needed to go. I walked into the room, but I was scared on a number of fronts. Number one, I'd not been trained. Number two, I didn't know anybody healed. Number three, I'd never seen anything like it. And number four, I didn't know if this guy was going to make fun of me. So I walked in, and he was he was in this hospital room, and he was not good. It was rigged up to wires, and you know, the, 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 beep, the monitors were beeping. He had uh, tubes going into him to give him inter intravenous feeds with uh, medicine and food and so on. Pale as a ghost. And I, <laughs> I went to visit him, and I was going to leave after I visited him, and he said, aren't you going to pray? And I asked him why he wanted me to do that. He burst into tears and never said a word. And he said, you're the only guy I know who believes the scripture is true. Won't you please pray that Jesus healed that guy? So, you know, I, suddenly I just felt I needed to. But I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I mean, I just didn't know what I was doing. I went around to where he was. I asked where the phlebitis was. He said, left elbow, just above the, just above the left, left arm, just above the elbow. Put my hand there, prayed for him. And this happened to me. Suddenly it was like the entire room filled he could feel it and I could feel it. It was like I was inhaling the stuff. And as I looked at him, I sensed this uh, this fire inside my being. Now, I know you have a seven-mile chat based on the Emmaus Road. And in the Emmaus Road, the disciples feel their hearts strangely warm. They feel this burning fire inside their beings. And that's what happened to me. Hmm. I felt this burning fire in the center of my soul. I felt compassion for him. I felt tears going down my face as I was praying this untrained prayer that I don't remember what I said. And I said something to the effect of, would you please heal this man? And as I did, the fire grew inside of me and, and focus on him. I couldn't look at anything else. And then that power flowed through my arm and went into his. And he looked at me and he said, what is that fiery presence burning inside of you? I said, that's the power of the spirit. He's healing. And I, I raced out of the room. <laughs> Because I was terrified. I'd never experienced anything like that before. I didn't know what I was doing, and I was afraid he was going to mock me. And the next day, I saw him at the school. 
he pulled me into a corner, looked in one direction, and he said, that prayer changed my life. And what the man didn't know and what I've now come to realize, I had, I had, it had changed my life too. It was the first encounter I had with that, that experience that's described in Luke 5, 17, what happened with Jesus. The power of the Lord was on me to perform healing. I, I didn't ask for it. I didn't look for it. It just happened. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that, that, that's why I put, that's why I wanted to talk about this verse. Yeah, you, you said a lot there. I want to address some of it. Um, and that story you shared is, is so powerful and so and so beautiful. Um, I guess I looked at this and I didn't, I didn't necessarily see initially the Trinitarian aspect of it. I know that like John's gospel you mentioned is very incarnational. So I love that you're able to see like and draw the elements of the Trinity from this passage. And certainly I love any passage where we see Christ's humanity and divinity and just in these two verses, right? Like you see the humanity of wanting to kind of retreat and recharge, like I, I mentioned, and then also that power that you're talking about um, that comes through the Holy Spirit. I guess my next yeah. question is um, like, you know, it says in in, um, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter that we all have different spiritual gifts. Um, yeah. And certainly there is that connection for prayer that we can all, we can all do, but we all pray differently and we all have different spiritual gifts. Like, do you think it's possible for, um, of, like all people to have this power of healing through Christ or, or do you think it's certain like people have this special gift? My answer is yes. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> to both of those aspects. What, what I can tell you about first Corinthians 12, it, there's a list of spiritual gifts that are in the material. In fact, I, 12, 13 and 14 are what I call a Pentecostal sandwich. You know, you've got spiritual gifts in 12, you've got spiritual gifts in 14 and you have the love gifts, which is the meat of it in chapter 13. But it's not just the love chapter. It's spiritual gifts infused with love chapter. That's what that is. But when he talks about gifts of healing, it's plural. And he mentions it three times in chapter 12. And there's not a reference to any other gift being plural. Prophecy is described in the singular. Tongues is described in the singular. Um, the word of wisdom, word of knowledge, uh, discernment of spirits, they're all described in the singular as a person gets what's called a manifestation of the spirit. But the three times that he mentions the, the gifts of healing, it's always described as, as something that belongs collectively to a bunch of people. And so the way I've come to understand this is that gifts of healing are given to the person who's receiving the healing and at least the intercessor who's praying with them. And it's a shared gift. And so in the book, I, I describe, uh, you know, seven or eight different healing stories. All of them happen with crowds of people. And sometimes I'm the one who the prayer thing depends on. Sometimes I'm not. So I'll just illustrate this with a story that happened in 2019. I was, I'm the prayer coordinator for Christian Missionary Alliance Canada. And there's a group of pastors who serve in Quebec. And Quebec has gone through a great, uh, how do I say this? It's, it's terrible. The, that there's been this falling away from the church, and in particular from the tradition you're in. All kinds of people no longer go. They still call themselves Christian and Catholic, but they don't go. And there was this uh, kind of falling away. And so there's a, an attempt to try and reappropriate the faith among people who are cold and based upon some of the abuse stuff that's happened. Anyway, bottom line here is that um, I was asked by the bishop of that area in my denomination of Christians to do a, pa- to a conference for pastors. And so I trained 
a 17-year-old lad because he spoke French quite beautifully. <laughs> I, I, could, I could make myself understood, but I couldn't speak it well enough to be able to teach. And so I trained a team of four people. We went to pray for these pastors and leaders who were across the southern Mexican countries. And there was a room set apart for us to give prayer ministry to any person who wanted to receive it. And I had spoken at that district uh, five years before, and a miraculous act of power had happened at that district uh, while I was there. And this man uh, had heard about this because his son was in the room when it happened. Anyway, the point was that the man wanted me to pray for him because he thought that I had a particular gift for healing. And so I had this young man, his name was Julian. He was standing next to me. The man who came for prayer only spoke French, and I spoke English well and had a broken French, but it wasn't good. So I was asking Julian to intercede for this man. And while I was praying, I, I just have to say this to you, Julian. Absolutely nothing was happening inside of me. <laughs> and, and nothing was happening inside of the man. And I looked over at the fellow who was translating. His name was Julian, 17 years old, never seen this before, never tasted this before. His whole body is physically shaking. He's weeping and he's crying. His hands are fiery hot and he's vibrating as he's standing on the spot. I said, Julian, you better pray for this man. He said, Pastor David, I've never done it before. I said, put your hand on his back. That's where the affliction is. And as soon as he did, the man jumped out of his chair. He was remarkably healed. He picked up the 17-year-old, spun him around the room with a great big bear hug, celebrated and ran into the big assembly and told the 80 pastors who were there, that the Lord had healed him when the 17-year-old boy prayed for him. So the point is, God is jealous for his glory. Now, the point I'm making here is, yes, there are special people who have significant gifts of prayer for healing. And among them is one of the best Catholic scholars I've ever met, uh, Father Michael Scanlon, and also uh, the Reverend Francis mm. McDonough, who just passed away. These two fellows had remarkable gifts of prayer for healing. And... I believe that God can manifest those gifts anywhere, anytime, with anyone he wants to. Now, there's a difference between what I call manifestations of the Spirit and ministry offices. And Paul makes that distinction in 1 Corinthians 12. He talks about manifestations of the Spirit, and actually it's Trinitarian language. He talks about um, Spirit, uh, Christ, and God at the beginning of that chapter. And as you go through the material, he talks about how individuals get different manifestations for the common good. And it's clear, he's saying, anybody can get any of these gifts anytime the Holy Spirit wants to give them. And then he ends the chapter by describing people who have specific roles where those gifts are clustered. And the, the apostolic role is there. The, uh, the, uh, the prophetic role is there. And so also it, are there people who have manifestations of gifts of healing on a regular basis. And mm -hmm. I would say that the answer to your question is both and rather than either. Does that make mm. sense? Mm -hmm. Totally. And I, it gives me encouragement as well that, you know, people, when they know that you're a person of faith, as your friend that you mentioned when you, you know, the story about the 27-year-old, you know, they will ask me all the time, even if they're not spiritual people, to pray. I have plenty of people and coworkers who are spiritual that will ask me to pray for loved ones. Um, and I just question sometimes, like, is I mean, I always I always pray because I, I mean, I, I need it. It's my lifeblood. But sometimes I do question, like, am I doing any real good, like praying, especially for situations right now over in the Holy Land? Right. Like, oh, is yes. my prayer like is that and I, I believe in the power of it. I'm not saying that I don't, but I guess, you know, I question. And so this is encouraging that. Um, but I think what I'm hearing from you is that there has to be that that real connection, I guess. I don't know. Yes, the way I describe it is God initiates and we respond. Mm -hmm. And 
there are actually signals that happen. And actually, the fact that your your program is called the you know the, the seven mile um, journey, this thing, seven seven mile. You're talking Much about ass, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're talking about the road mm -hmm. to Emmaus. Mm -hmm. And actually, what I, I have another book that I wrote called "Hey, You're There, It's Me, God: How to Listen, Testify, When God Speaks." And one of my favorite verses is Luke twenty four forty two, because in that material, you find out that God's communication is primarily nonverbal. And mm -hmm. in that passage, the two guys who are walking down the road—if it's two guys, maybe it's a guy and a girl—we don't know. It's Cleopas and whoever his friend happens. Yeah, right. The only ones mentioned. It, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, could have been his wife. We don't know. But, we, but regardless, mm -hmm. there's two of them. And both of them have this happen to them at the same time. They invite Jesus in to, to a meal. He breaks the bread. He vanishes from their sight. Suddenly their eyes are open. They recognize it's him. And then they say this phrase. Did not our hearts burn mm -hmm. hot within us while he spoke the scriptures to us on the way? And there's four marks that are attached to hearing the voice. The first is the internal testimony of the spirit, which is characterized as an internal fire. And secondly, it's in harmony with the scripture that Jesus has been speaking to them as he's walking down that road about the role of Messiah and how uh, suffering and glory are intertwined. The third thing is um, they, they, uh, it pointed to Jesus of Nazareth being the risen Lord. And fourthly, they heard it together. They had the experience together. And so that whole notion of hearing the voice, which is attached to this text in Luke 5, is described in, in an internal mm -hmm. manner as interior fire around scripture pointing to Jesus together. And those four marks are involved in communal discernment. Uh, if you're studying the Ignatian disciplines, you'll get this. Uh, Ignatius would teach about consolation and desolation. What he doesn't mm -hmm. do is, is give a guide for how you do this collectively together. My doctoral work was in hearing the voice of the Spirit together, and I interviewed people who had uh, studied the Ignatian disciplines together with some Methodists and Presbyterians who had uh, put together a work called Discerning God's Voice Together. But the Ignatian disciplines were really profound underneath it. And so I began a search of scripture to look at what it feels like to hear the voice. And that passage in Luke 5.17 describes the energy that landed on Jesus. And the text that characterizes your program describes what it feels like for ordinary people who have no apostolic role or no powerful acts of power happening in their lives to, to taste it. Cleopas mm -hmm. and his friend weren't part of the leader corps. They were two people walking down a road. And mm -hmm. they be, you know, that, and you know, Jesus is dead. Now, you know this. If you have a significant loss, you talk to your God. Isn't that true? Mm -hmm. What do you do when your God dies? Who do you talk mm -hmm. to? And so they're walking down the road sharing their sorrow and their grief. They haven't got language to express it because their God is dead as far as they're aware. And their God comes beside them, unbeknownst to them, hidden from their view until he breaks the bread. But they're not leaders. They're ordinary people. Mm -hmm. they're, Which is good news for us, oh, <laughs> you know, the, those who are not ordained, yeah. No, that's, it's, <laughs> good it's news. marvelous news. It means that God wants to speak to us more than we want to hear. That's what it means. Yeah. yeah. So that's why I picked that passage, because even in the life of God the Son, he had a prayer life where he submitted himself to the discipline that was supposed to belong to our first parents. He had experiences of the Spirit. And in the passage that I chose, 517, it actually describes how the crowd became tangibly aware and Jesus became tangibly aware that the power had landed on him before mm -hmm. he healed the man. 
That's, that's beautiful. That's... It makes sorry. It makes me think too of um, like the passage from Isaiah where the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach with good news. Right, that that Spirit of the Lord, that power, um, a connection. And I love when the Old Testament and the New Testament come together, which they do throughout oh. you know throughout the Bible. I mean, there's so many parallels. No, that, that verse is shared in Luke 4 just before this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he felt mm-hmm. it. He felt the anointing. That's the point I'm trying to make. And the, yeah, and then I, I love how you summarized it all too, like how you um, kind of broke down that verse again for us. But like the because of the prayer, um, then he was able to to do what he does. And I love how you shared these examples of how we too can, can have that power that does give um, great hope. Um, I have one last little question, I guess, as someone who's kind of studied scripture, not kind of studied, I have studied scripture. Um, I have heard from sources and I guess I wanted, um, some people have said contradicted this, but, um, is, is Luke known for being a physician? Like, was that something that you're understanding that he was fascinated by Jesus' healings because he himself was a physician? Well, actually, um, Paul describes him as the great physician. He does. Mm-hmm. So, yes, yeah. the scripture testifies to that reality. Now, what does the physician work like, look like? I don't know because it was primitive. Mm-hmm. The, the Greeks, of course, had the Hippocratic Oath, and perhaps Luke was trained by them. So they did uh, cures, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, <laughs> what they did and what we do are probably very different things. Yeah. <laughs> but I suspect yeah. that, that, yes, he was interested in people getting well if he's described as a physician. I suspect mm-hmm. if he's Gre- he was Greco-Roman. Because he was, he wasn't Jewish, he was Greco-Roman, that he would mm-hmm. have studied the Hippocratic Oath and looked at the teaching of Hippocrates around getting people well. I suspect he did surgeries, and yes, I do believe he was a medical doctor. That clears that up for me once and for all. I I, I mean, definitely if Paul is referencing, I, I love my guy Paul. So um, well, as we were go. wrapping, <laughs> as we're, he, yeah, I, I, I love Paul. So as we're wrapping up, um, what final things would you like to say about this passage? And then I'll also give you a chance to share anything that's going on that you'd like us to know about? Well, actually, what I'm trying to get at here is that Jesus was not just the historical example who did it. He was actually the primordial second Adam to equip us to do it. Yeah. And yeah. so when this thing, it, but if this has to happen to God the Son, how much more does it has to happen to us when we're mm-hmm. involved in learning how to do prayer for healing? Mm-hmm. And that my point in picking this passage is that I wanted people to see that he did not do it based on his divinity. He did it based upon his prayerful submission. Mm. And that is imparted to us through the ministry of Jesus by his spirit, as the spirit is imparted to us. That's what I want people to understand. And actually, the the best Catholic writer on this was Francis Mignot. And he wrote a book called Healing. It's an old book now. It was written way back in the 70s. It's just called Healing. It's by Doubleday. And if you've got a Catholic audience, want to read a Catholic author, he was a Dominican priest. So you, you, you could encourage your people to do that. But there hasn't been much what I call common sense writing on prayer for healing. And uh, I'm the first one in my denomination which believes in healing as an article of faith in more than 50 years. So my, my book, Healing Prayer, teaches people how to pay attention to the interior promptings of listening to the voice of the Spirit to recognize when they're being commanded to enter into those prayer for healings what pitfalls to avoid, what not to do when you're dealing with somebody who's struggling in their faith and and you don't want to hurt them more, you want to help them. How to come alongside this thing called medicine and mystery and miracle and how they intertwine, because they do. And I want people to understand that we're not throwing out medicine in the name of miracle, and we're not demanding miracle from the place where we throw out medicine, and we live in this place called holy mystery when we do not know why the answer has come or not come, why we were chosen or not chosen. 
we leave that to the to the oracles of God and the commands of Scripture. That's that's fine and helpful. So I would encourage people to uh, to uh, my book is breast, hot, hot off the press. It was just released uh, about three four weeks ago in November of this year, and uh, it's available anywhere books are sold. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at Barnes and Noble if you order it. It's, the title's Sound Healing Day, and it's a co-write with a million-selling author. The, the, the co-writer is Maxie Dunham. He wrote a book called The Workbook of Every Prayer, and that sold a million copies, and he is the co-writer with me. We've done great research. He was the president of the Principle of Asbury Seminary, and so he's a scholar, and so am I, if you can probably tell that by now. <laughs> but it's, it's written for the average person to be able to understand how to enter into prayer for healing, and it teaches mystery, medicine, miracle, how they can do it. So people can find my, my website at Spirit Equip, like Holy Spirit. Take the word spirit. Take the word equip, like in equipment, and put the two words together, spiritequip.com. And there's links to my social media there. You can get to my Facebook page or Instagram account or my YouTube channel. And you can see recorded testimonies on YouTube of people who have experienced miraculous healing recently in the last couple of years. And uh, some of them are my friends. Some of them are people I've prayed with, lambs out of convents. And all of them are medically verified. All of them have doctors who are attached to them that have done these things. So there you go. Wow. I think that that's uh, that would be a helpful. Yeah. Thing. Well, David, thank you so much. Definitely, um, I recommend everybody checking out his website and checking out his book. If you want to know more about me and my podcast, I'm on Instagram at Seven Mile Chats, all spelled out. You can follow me there, and if you'd like to be a guest, you can message me there. I'm also on, uh, well, it's X now, but it was Twitter, <laughs> at MissStruckly1, and I tweet about what's going on in my uh, relig like religious edu education and Catholic education and in my classroom. I'm at MissStruckly1, M-S-S-T-R-U-K-E-L-Y-1, and you can follow me there for more information on that. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. David Chotka, for being here today. I really appreciate you sharing this passage and um, your stories of healing with us. Well, thank you very much. It's a joy and a delight to be able to be here. Bye, everyone. <laughs>